We're going to be picking up where Grady left off two weeks ago. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it there. As Aaron said, and as I said, if you don't have a Bible, we have a couple in the back. would love for you to just put one in your hand, read it along with us this morning as we get into God's Word. And if you don't have one to take home, take it home. I want you to have the Word of God in you as you start to grow in Christ. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 9 through 12 this morning. And as you're getting there, I just want to recap for us a little bit about this letter, how we got to this place. This is a letter called 1 Thessalonians. Paul the Apostle is writing to Christians, those who have received the gospel in Thessalonica. And what's unique about this letter compared to the other New Testament epistles is that this is overtly a positive letter from the beginning. Paul, from the very beginning, writes about how these believers, these people, received the gospel, and it bared a lot of fruit right away. It says in chapter 1 that the gospel came to them with power, and that the word of God then proceeded forth from them with sounding forth fruitfulness in their community. We see that they received the word, it says, as actually the word of God, and not simply the words of men. And Paul writes for a few chapters, Grady mentioned this a couple weeks ago, how Paul is just intimately talking about his ministry with these Christians, his love for them, how they have suffered persecution at the hands of their own countrymen, similar to the Jews, and how he loves them deeply. And what we see time and time again is that this church is a faithful church. These Christians are faithful Christians. And then we transition slightly into chapter 4, where Paul does not rebuke these believers, but he starts to address some areas where obviously some would be falling short, some who perhaps claim the name of Jesus, but maybe are not really followers of Christ. And he starts to talk about holiness and sanctification, particularly with sexual immorality, lustful passions, not taking advantage of one another in those ways. And then we get to our text here this morning. And so I've kind of summed up this passage by saying the goal this morning is sanctification, and that word simply means holiness, to be set apart. The goal this morning is sanctification and gospel witness as we look at love and obedience in daily life. Let me say that one more time. The goal from this text this morning is sanctification and gospel witness as we look at love and obedience in daily life. I want to read starting in actually verse 1 of chapter 4 to give us a running start into this text this morning, and then we will pray and then we will dive in verse by verse. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 1, Paul says this, additionally then brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God as you are doing Do this even more. We're going to touch on this in a few minutes. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles, those who do not know God, this means, one of you, this means one must not transgress against or take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner. 
Because the Lord is an avenger, the true avenger, of all these things. We also previously told you and warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who gives you his holy spirit. About brotherly love, you do not need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. Let's pray together and ask God to illuminate us to the word. Lord, we need you, though we have you, to illuminate us to the scriptures, to teach us that we might not sit here today and just gain information, but it might transform us, that we might walk with great power, understanding the gospel in greater measure today for your glory. Lord, my prayer has been, and now I say it again, Lord, would you, would you edify the saints here this morning? Those of us who truly love Christ, would this passage change us and cause us to have greater zeal in our obedience to you? And if there is even one sinner here this morning that you have brought here that the gospel has yet to transform, would today be the day that they come to saving faith in Christ and are born again into the living hope that we just talked about? To you be the glory we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. So verse 9, Paul transitions here from confronting sexual immorality primarily, living holy and honorable lives, and now he says about brotherly love. Probably all of your Bibles use that term brotherly before love, but that's actually just put in there by the translators. The word is simply love, and here it's referring to love that we have towards one another. Brother, you could say sisterly if you would like. It's the idea of the horizontal love that we have for one another because of the vertical love that we have in Christ. This love is the love that Jesus talks about in John 13 as he's about to go to the cross and he washes his disciples' feet and he tells them that it's by this love for one another that people are going to know that you are actually my disciples. It is the love that John speaks about, the Apostle John when he writes to Christians in 1 John 4 and says this, If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or his sister, he is a liar. For he who, did, for he who does not love his brother or sister, whom he has seen, cannot love God, who he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, must also love his brother and his sister. This is the love that comes from God. We know that God is love. So Paul here is referring to this practical working out of the Christian faith. But notice what he says. He says, now regarding love or concerning love or about love, he says, you do not need me to write to you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I read that, that seems to be contradictory. 
because Paul is actually writing them about love. And as we've gone through this letter, he mentions love numerous times. Paul is not saying here that it's unnecessary for preachers, teachers, one another to talk or to instruct or to remind each other of loving, but he's getting to the foundational component of how we love one another. And that is we have to be taught by God. It's a supernatural work of God. And I think in order for us to understand verse 9 and verse 10, we have to go back to verse 8. Look at verse 8 as he sums up that section. He says, Consequently, anyone who rejects this, that is, teaching about holiness and living honorably before the Lord, he says they're not rejecting man, but God, who does what? Who gives you or gives us his Holy Spirit. Paul is stating here in verse 9 that you need to have the Holy Spirit in order to understand true love. It is God who births in those that are his to love one another. And the evidence is that these believers, when they receive the gospel, what have they been doing? Loving one another. Unlike so many who seek to press on the outward behavior of people in order to try to change the inside, that's not what true love, that's not how true love happens. It is an inward birthing where God teaches us and instructs us and makes us love one another. This is genuine conversion 101. If you don't love, you are not in Christ. Not that we love perfectly or that we fall short or that we don't need to be instructed to love, but if you do not love this morning, it is a byproduct of the fact that most likely you are actually not born again. John also says something similar to what Paul's saying here in 1 John 2 when he writes and says this, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing or the Holy Spirit that you have received from him, it abides in you. And he says, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you, about everything and is true and is not a lie, just as it has taught you, abide or remain in Christ. Similarly here, John is not saying that we don't need teachers, that we don't need to be taught the word, that we don't benefit from those in the body of Christ who God has gifted to do that, but he's getting at the foundational component of understanding the truth of God's word, and that is God has to teach you. It has to be coming from the Spirit of God inside a regenerate person. So John here is stating and saying and really commending these believers, man, concerning love, I don't even need to write you because God is working in you. It's overflowing out of you. This is the nature of the truly converted person, those who have been made new in Christ. I think early on in my Christian life, The idea of love or the term love, I think because it is tainted by so many who water down the truth of the gospel, who pervert the scriptures, who simply present love as an Easter bunny, fluffy, jumping down the street, instead of the cross of Christ, the infinite love of God, that my idea of love, I kind of set it aside as as if that was kind of elementary. 
But beloved Christian, if you are here today, this is the key component, one of the key components of being a follower of Christ. When a natural baby is born into this world and they come out of the womb for the first time, what do they do? They cry. So also when a spiritual baby is born into the kingdom of God, they love. They love. And we're going to look and unpack here a little bit more of what love looks like in some greater measure. But for now, I just want to ask the question regarding love. Do you love brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you have affection for those who are in Christ and even those who are outside of Christ? We will touch base on that in a few minutes. But if you claim the name of Jesus this morning, and if you say, like John writes, I love God, and yet you hate your brother and your sister, you're a liar. You're a liar. And the truth is not in you. Let's continue on. Verse 10. So he says, you don't need anybody to write you. You yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Now he commends them even more. In fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But, but we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more. Here Paul is spurring them on, and I find this very encouraging, because it's not like, again, most letters or when I oftentimes deal with my kids, and I'm correcting their disobedience and then putting them on a trajectory of what they need to be doing. Here, Paul's saying, goodness, man, the entire region of Macedonia, you're loving people. He's commending them. He is rejoicing in what God is doing. He is not rebuking them because of lack of faithfulness here. And yet, we see that it doesn't end there. I was telling John this morning as I came in, it's like if we were to hike this amazing mountain, and we were ascending up this beautiful mountain, maybe, I don't know, somewhere like New Zealand, right, where the Garden of Eden has some remnants left over for us to look forward to. And we see luscious greenery and amazing fruit trees and animals of all shapes and sizes and colors. And as we're on the path and we are making the ascent, it's like Paul is saying, you're on the journey. You are hiking. You are seeing and enjoying and observing. But keep going. Keep going on the path. Love is an infinite attribute of God. We are not going to find the peak of the mountain this side of glory. So he encourages them to do so even more. In 1 Thessalonians 3, just a a few verses before this, he says in verse 11 and 12, And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we do for you. The Christian life is like a cup that you stick under the faucet, it fills it to the brim, and you just leave it there. And it just flows over and over and over. That's how love should be manifesting in our life. We should never get to the place where we've said, I've tapped out, loved my wife enough, loved my neighbors enough, loved my co-workers and boss enough. No, even if we are excelling in love, we need to be commended, we need to be encouraged to do so more and more. And so I want to ask us the question, how can we both walk 
in love more and more and encourage one another to walk in love more and more on a daily basis. I have a few points I think that will help us. First, we need to have meditation. We need to have meditation. We need to be meditating personally on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel, the scripture centered around Jesus. If we are to love others and be spurred on to encourage others, we have to have the love of Christ pouring forth in our own heart constantly. We need to be meditating upon the glorious splendor of God. If you get cut and you don't bleed the glory of Christ and the goodness of God, if Jesus isn't your greatest treasure, if the gospel isn't what your life is summed up living for, then you are not going to be excelling in love and you surely are not going to be encouraging other people to do the same. Psalm 145.5 says, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Since I got saved, I have never been a guy to go and study or go and, and memorize scripture, particularly. Some people do that. But I've always been one to just meditate on the word of God. I want to soak in the scriptures, kind of like a tea bag. Just want to steep in it and take it in more and more. And if we do that, we will love more and we will encourage others to love more. Secondly, we must, we must meditate, but we also must consider. Consideration. We need to be thinking about ways to put love into practice in our own life and in the life of others. Hebrews 10.24 says this, And let us consider how to stir one another up towards love and good works. It's not enough for us to just sit at home and meditate upon Christ. That's good. That's the starting place. But we then need to consider how can we put this into action? We all are gifted by God. We have been given spiritual gifts. We have been given desires. We've been placed in certain areas, jobs, locations, neighborhoods. Let us consider not wasting our life and how we might love others and spur one another to do the same. And that would lead us into application. We must meditate, we must consider, but we must apply. We must apply. I know in my own life I can do the first two, but man, something gets in the way of putting it into action. I could think about loving other people and ways to extend the gospel and using my time and my money and then, boom, I get a work call. And next thing you know, three hours went by, my day is gone, and I'm just struggling to put the kids to bed. We need to be applying the love of Christ. We need to be doers of the word and not hearers of the word often. And I have a couple points of how we can apply loving one another and encouraging one another in love. First is we need to gather I, I preached a couple months ago on Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, where we see the early church in Jerusalem receive the gospel. And what did they do? Daily, they were gathering and breaking bread and listening to the scriptures and praying with one another. I was just telling my wife this morning as we were driving to church, going through a neighborhood, just how screwed up America is. Other places in the world where people don't have much, people are suffering and struggling to work. They're, they're, they're working jobs that nobody would want to have just to survive. But they live in community. 
They share their time with their neighbors, with their relatives, with their family. And here in America, it's often the case, it's all about isolation. Go to your job, do your own thing. You do you, right? You do you. But we need to do us. We need to gather together often, making Christ the central piece of our gathering. We need to be spurring one another on in the truth. And if we don't gather together, how can we love one another? It's not possible. We also need to be reminding one another. Reminding, this is kind of like considering. But we need to be actively reminding each other about love, about the gospel, about the kingdom of heaven, about why we're here, why God has us right now breathing still on planet earth. We need to be reminded to press on, to be holy, to pursue Christ with all of our heart. Peter, he thought so. 2 Peter 1, 12 through 13, he says this, writing to Christians, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. We should never ever get tired of being reminded about Christ, the kingdom, the love of God. And though it is God who teaches us, it is the Spirit of God in us that is birthing our change, our obedience, our walk with Him, we need to be reminded it's God's perfect plan. Why He chose that, I don't know, but He did. So it's not that we need to be reminded because we're not in Christ, it's because we are in Christ, we need to be continually reminded of the gospel and the kingdom of heaven. And then lastly, how we might love one another and encourage one another to do the same. We have to lead by example. We have to lead by example. It's not enough for us to meditate and consider and even apply if we're not living it out in a way that others can see our faith, can imitate our walk, and be spurred on by our actions. You've heard the term, actions speak louder than words. I don't think that's accurate. I think it's actions and words. They must go hand in hand, but you get the point of why people say that because oftentimes people aren't living out what they actually preach. And we all need to be convicted by this. We need to set an example. Paul, in 2 Thessalonians 1.3, as we wrap up this section, I want us to see that these believers as they received this letter and read this, that it did not fall upon deaf ears. But actually, this is very encouraging. What Paul is writing here was put into practice by these believers. And we read in 2 Thessalonians 1.3, as Paul's writing them later, he says, We ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, since your faith is flourishing and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. Man, I can't tell you how much I feel like I hear Christianity. It's like Jesus just paid for your sins. You're justified, but don't ever plan on walking in obedience. Don't ever plan on actually living this out and loving one another. It's okay to just fail. And that's not what we see here. These believers, it's like they take the word of God with great delight and joy and they just consume it. And what happens? Their life is bearing fruit more and more. This is encouraging for us. In a couple minutes, not so encouraging. We'll see that some of them are failing in other areas. But let us understand, guys, that it is God who must teach us 
and that we need, to, we need to consider and spur one another on more and more to love and good works. Let's continue on. Let's look at verse 11. He now is going to make a shift. So it's as if he says, look, here's regarding love. Man, you guys are doing it. Do it more and more. And here's three more points that I want to address. I've titled this verse, verse 11, normative daily living as kingdom witnesses. And I'll tell you, over the last probably, I don't know, three or four years, I feel like this has been an area that God has been heavily sanctifying me personally. And just recently, I'm in a men's study. We're going through a a book that's talking about work and what that looks like in the kingdom of heaven. But for a long time, once I got saved, I had this idea that like everybody had to be a pastor and the reality is, that's, that's few in the kingdom. Men who would be fully given over to vocational ministry, and even if you're a woman today, this applies to you as well, for women work and have all sorts of duties. But normative daily living as kingdom witnesses, this is going to be for all of us the main ministry that we have in Christ. Too often people think ministry is the guy who's flying to Saudi Arabia to bring the gospel, and that is ministry, but that's not the ministry. Most people are going to receive the gospel where they're at, Maricopa, Michigan, Saudi Arabia, and they're going to just continue on doing what they were doing before they got saved, and they're going to be living on mission for the glory of Christ. And here's three points for us this morning that Paul points out that we are going to live as gospel witnesses. Number one, he says, live or seek to lead a quiet life. Seek or pursue to live quietly. Now, I want to point out a few things of what this does not mean, okay? Living a quiet life does not mean that we live apathetic lives. We are not to have the shrug the shoulder mentality that, man, I'll just live quietly. I don't really care about the kingdom. I'll just do my own thing and, and, you know, not get in anybody's way. It's not about apathy. We should have zeal, and you can't read this letter and walk away not thinking that. It does not mean that we should live reclusive lives. Living quiet lives is not reclusive living. The idea of monkery that says, oh, I, I know, I'll go live in a dungeon away from everybody until Jesus comes and gets me or I die. That is not what quiet living is about. It's the opposite. We need to be mingled in society, making much of Jesus Christ. Living a quiet life does not mean that we should not ever speak about Christ, that we should literally keep our mouths quiet, that we shouldn't tell our coworkers, our friends, our family members about the infinite riches of Christ, the only way for salvation. It doesn't mean that. And it does not mean that we should be silent regarding social evil or cultural sins that are on the front lines. I think of guys like William Wilberforce and Charles Spurgeon, Englishmen who during the time of the slave trade in England said, that's wicked. That's sin. It's not okay. Take a stand. Living a quiet life doesn't mean that we're just passive. So what does it mean? Living a quiet life 
means that we are to carry out our kingdom duties without saying, look at me, here I am. Check out my Facebook page. Check out my Instagram. It's about not seeking attention for ourselves. I thought of a few examples. One is, think of a professional athlete. Think about the athlete who has all the money, who's loud and boisterous, who has the big diamond necklace, who dyes his hair wild colors, who's telling everybody how great he is, who's celebrating and puffing out his chest when he scores touchdowns, who doesn't listen to the coach, who doesn't care what other people have to say, who thinks he's better than everybody, though he might be good, that person, that athlete is not caring about their work quietly. And then the opposite, you have the athlete who gets to work early, does what he's supposed to do, excels, loves his teammates. When he scores, he hands the ball to the ref, walks away humbly. When he's interviewed, he points to other people, takes no credit in and of himself. That is a picture of what it means to live a quiet life. It's not that we don't carry about our work of the kingdom. It's that we don't seek to be front and center. And our culture has a major problem with that. And I know in my own life, I had a major problem with that, even before Facebook was very popular. Just the idea of being consumed with me. The kingdom of God is not about me. So we must live quiet lives. We must carry about our business. Let's get into these next two points and elaborate for us more so what he means. He says to mind your own business. I know all of us have heard that to our face at least once, right? Mind your own business. It's normally coming from somebody who is not happy, doesn't want us to talk to them, and thinks we need to butt out. And frankly, Paul here is saying there are some who need to butt out. We're not focusing first on ourselves in a healthy way to carry about our own duties and responsibilities. Instead, sticking our nose into other people's lives. They're they're those who are caught up in gossiping. That's probably the forefront sin of this failure to not mind your own business. Those who want to gossip. Those who are wanting to see the next stirring of contention. They want to see fights and bickering and they get excited about those things and they want to talk about so-and-so and did you hear about this and blah, blah, blah. Those people need to be rebuked. That's not okay. It's not okay. Minding your own business does not mean, though, that we don't lovingly get in other people's lives, okay? And this is a temptation, and we're going to have to deal with it. It doesn't mean that we should not be lovingly intrusive. Galatians 6.1 tells us, look, if you see a brother or sister, and you're in their life, you're doing life with them, you love them, you care about them, and you notice that they're entangled. They're entangled in some sin, He says, you who are spiritual, you who are not entangled, go to that brother or sister and help them. But don't do it arrogantly, lest you too are also tempted. So it doesn't mean that we should not engage with one another. It doesn't mean that we should not say hard things. It doesn't mean that we should not say hard things. Our culture also is very sensitive to anybody saying, that's not right. That's not the way. 
doesn't mean that. Sticking our nose in other people's business is one thing, but standing up for truth, saying hard things at times, what it means is that we get the log out of our own eye before we help other people get the speck out of their eye. This is the mentality of what it means to mind your own business. If people look at me and they see Trevor is not taking care of his own family, his home, seeking to love his coworkers and neighbors, to live out the gospel, and yet I'm walking around poking my nose in everybody else's business, hey, how, what are you doing in your marriage? Well, why are you doing that? that I, that's where we need to be rebuked. But we do need one another to care for one another, lovingly encouraging one another as we press on in our holiness. And then thirdly, he says, and to work with your own hands. These three are connected. They're intertwined. The idea here is that there were some people who were unnecessarily, that's the key word, unnecessarily dependent on other people to take care of them. They had the ability to work. They had the opportunity to go and take care of themselves, but instead, they didn't do it. And so Paul here is is rebuking those people. He's saying, no, that's not okay. You need to not be lazy. You need to not be dependent on other people if, in fact, it's in your realm to make sure that that's available. Now, there's some people who are, who are not unnecessarily. They're necessarily suffering. They're poor. They're being persecuted. They have needs. He's not talking about those people here. He's talking about those who have access to take care of themselves. And I think there's a lot that we can say here. There's, there's two sides that we can fall when it comes to work. One is idleness, which he's addressing here. The other is idolatry, which people are just gung-ho pursuing work as the end all. But here it's idleness. Now let me just say this. Work is good. Work is good. In Genesis, we see that God made man and woman in his image, and he set them apart to work. So work is good. The idea that, man, work sucks, and goodness, I can't wait till the weekend, and I just hate work, and I got to get up again and work, that's not from God, that's from us. That's sin. The idea, you've heard the phrase, got to put in hard work. Hard work is not in the kingdom. We need to work hard, but hard work is a result of the fall. So Paul here is saying, look, you need to work with your own hands. You need to be caring for your own needs. You need to be working hard, not depending on other people. And I wanted to address both men and women in this because there are differences of roles, Men primarily, we see from Genesis, are to be the main ones caring for their home. Men are the ones who are leading the way with work. Not that women don't work, they do. We see all sorts of examples of this. But men, first and foremost, we need to take this to heart, I think, the deepest. It's not okay to not work. The idea whether you're 18 or whether you're 86, you might not be able to work as much at 86, but the idea of retirement and collecting seashells in Florida, not talking to you, Jim, is not something we find in the scriptures. However that work might look to one way, shape, or form, we should be working for the kingdom of heaven. And here particularly, we should be working. And we need to see work as not just something for ourselves, 
but something for other people. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that the Christians are to have generosity overflowing out of the wealth of the gospel that they received. And in that letter, he, he mentions two types of people. There are people who at certain seasons have plenty. And there's people in certain seasons who don't have what they need. So it's not just, hey, work so that you can get everything for yourself, buy a bigger house, get more stuff, live for yourself, get everything and then die and go to heaven. But it's so that we could also care for other people. We can extend the kingdom. We can provide for others. The very heart of Christ himself. Work is going to look different for all of us. A couple things I want to mention. One, you might not like your job. You might not like your job. I want to encourage you, even if you don't like your job, to work at it for the glory of Christ. And to see your work as not something that is a burden that man came up with, but something that you can actually glorify God with, making much of him. There's some women here this morning who their primary work is literally in the home. Titus, Paul writing to Titus says this. He says, telling older women to teach younger women to do what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children and to be self-controlled, pure, and workers at home, kind and submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. This is exactly what Paul's talking about here. Whatever stage of life, whether you're male or female, wherever God has you, don't have the mentality that it's okay to drift and to leech off other people. But rather, let us use the gifts God's given us to make much of him. If you're a wife and you're at home with kids, that's probably harder than any work anybody could do. Work at it unto the Lord. Make much of Jesus in your home. And then vocational ministry. This is maybe something to encourage even one person here. I know for myself, again, for too long I had this idea like, man, vocational ministry, vocational ministry, get paid, be a pastor. Not because of the money, but just my heart and desire to teach and preach and shepherd God's people. But the reality is, and, and if you look through church history and if you just consider the culture and where, and where people live, getting paid to pastor is, is, is like minute, even Paul himself, while he got supported by some, he sought to seek and to lead an ex by example by working and preaching so that the Thessalonians would have a, a, an example of what it looks like to labor for the glory of Christ. So I think there might even be one here who needs to just hear, look, vocational ministry might not be it for you. And you can still make much of Christ and still teach the word and still disciple people and plant churches and extend the gospel. I think we need to see that work is a good thing and that we need to use it to make much of Christ. But look what he says at the end of these three. What does he say? He says, as we commanded, as we commanded you. This is not suggestive. I don't know about some of you, but sometimes when I hear commands, sometimes it hits me the wrong way, like, whoa, you know, or you commanded me to do something. Yes, this is a command. And John writes that if we love Jesus and he's our treasure, that his commands are not burdensome to us. It's not like we're getting beaten down and drilled down by a military sergeant, but rather we're looking at the King of kings and Lord of lords who is commanding us to walk in love, to walk as he did. 
And so we need to see this. Too often people use that as an excuse. Well, you know, that's just doesn't, that's for you, not for me. Now, this is for everybody, and it's not suggestive. And all the New Testament commands are not suggestive, they're commands. And we should be loving and wanting to walk in them. And what are the commands ultimately summed up in? What are these three things? What are they ultimately summed up in? What can we say is the apex? It is to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. So the love that Paul is talking about, we can absolutely attach that, connect that to these three points. If love is extending, man, I better stay out of people's business. I better be working with my hands and I better be living a quiet life for the glory of Christ. That loves my neighbor. Sadly, well, let me back it up. As Paul writes this, keep in mind, he's not writing because the bulk of these believers are falling short. He's writing them and he's just pointing out a couple things where people will fall short. But later in 2 Thessalonians, there are some who do not heed what he is saying here. Listen to what he says. Now such persons, there's a few, some, we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So we need to hear that. If that's an area in your life where you are not loving people, change, change. Let's look at verse 12 as we close this out. Why does it matter? We just read in Titus, it matters that younger women love their husbands, are submissive, love their children, so that the word of God is not blasphemed, so that Christ in his kingdom is not tarnished by our life. He says in verse 12 here, so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. Let's talk about not tarnishing the witness of Christ among outsiders. Paul writing to Timothy, talking about pastors, men who are called to serve and to love the church by taking care of them with the word. He has a list of character traits, and in that he says this, 1 Timothy 3, 7. He says, moreover, a pastor must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. That, although it is particular to pastors, is not only for pastors. We ought to be people where outsiders, that are those who do not yet believe upon Christ, cannot look at our lives and go, that guy's a Christian? Goodness, that guy's a pastor? Have you ever seen him at work? We need to be living lives in this way, So that even the natural world, so to say, cannot look at their own lives, this is big, and say, we're living out the general order of God's kingdom, but they claim to know this God and they don't do it. Even the world, by at large, although there's many who fall short in this, work, take care of their families, people who stay out of people's business, seek to live quietly, how much more should we, if we claim the name of Christ, be living this way so that we may behave properly in the world? 
in the world, not of the world. We need to be living this out. And then lastly, again, he just mentions it so that we're not dependent on anyone. This doesn't mean, guys, that, that you know, my kids need to get out and start working. They're dependent on dad. This doesn't mean that there's not seasons and stages of life where there is dependence and it's necessary. But this is, again, addressing idleness. Those who can work, who have the opportunity to work, and are choosing not to do that, and instead they are leeching off other people. And how much more so, again, not only that we could care for our own needs, but man, wouldn't it be sweet to be able to help other people who need us? Not because we're great, but because God has given us more. So let this all sink in and let us all just bring this back to what matters in all of it, and that is the glory of Christ. Making much of Jesus, living upright, honorable lives for the glory of God. Let's pray together and then John is going to come up and lead us in a time of reflecting and remembering and proclaiming Christ until he comes back through the Lord's Supper. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, I do pray that you would just penetrate our hearts, let us meditate on it, chew on it, be consumed by it, be changed by it, that we might walk humbly, that we might live here humbled, encouraged, if need be, again, convicted, rebuked, which we all need that at times. Um, so, Lord, let your word do what your word does. Penetrate your people's hearts for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.